Luke chapter 16. But before we go any further, let's pray. Our gracious Lord God, we continue to praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that it is the infallible uh, truth upon which we can base our life. Help us to live that way, Lord. Help us to, by faith, walk moment by moment in light of your word. Help us to understand uh, it better moment by moment, day by day. Again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, and actually the last couple of weeks, as I listened to Mark, uh, and the Lord's been sort of working in this in my, in my mind anyway, but uh, I was thinking, all that Mark said, of course, is true. And when he's talked about the scripture, everything that he says is true. And we know it's true because it is the word of God. But And that's really the presupposition that we have. That the word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, are inspired of God. Or God breathed, literally, and we, we believe that. And while I would like to spend some time in discussing why, I just want to emphasize in this, this message about, uh, about the Word of God and its importance. Now, when I think of theology and various doctrines, I, I, I tend to classify them into three broad categories. Essential doctrines are doctrines that a person must believe or he's not a Christian, no matter what they might profess. There are certain, a few certain things that a person must know to be absolutely true and, and really internalize things like, I'm a sinner. Some very, very basic things. Christ is my salvation. His substitutionary atonement, if you like big words, His dying on the cross for me is the whole basis of my salvation. These Essential doctrines are plainly taught in many places in Scripture so that there can be no doubt as to what the Bible says about them. Nobody can, can say, give the old uh, uh, dog bone, well, that's your interpretation, but I think it says... But things like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary atonement, again, necessary for salvation. The Lord Jesus said to the, the, the Pharisees, except you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you notice the word I am, he, he is in italics. 
And the Jews knew exactly what he meant, that he was claiming to be the very same person who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and say, tell them I am that I am sent you. Which is why they picked up stones to stone him. Then there's primary doctrines. Like, this is my classification anyway, so you take it or leave it. But primary doctrines are doctrines that are important for Christian growth. These are also taught plainly in, in many places in Scripture and Many other doctrines are built on top of, this, of this, these particular doctrines. The doctrine of creation is an ex excellent example of a primary doctrine. When you believe in a literal creation, that God created out of nothing six, in six 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago and rested the seventh day, That is an example of a, a primary doctrine, or a, yeah, a primary doctrine that you can build on. Our whole belief about marriage is built on that. Our whole belief on, of original sin is based on that. If you, if you believe in millions of years then of, of earth history, then for millions of years all these animals have been dying and dying and dying and then when God said to Adam when the day you eat that fruit you're gonna die what changed? there's no change nothing happened because he was gonna die anyway but if the earth is only one day old when that message is given to, or I should say six days old when that message is given to Adam, that was a change. And Adam may or may not have understood what death was. All he had to understand is that's something bad that I don't want to have happen. And in Genesis chapter 3, when they sinned, God very visibly showed them what death was. Maybe it was a lamb, maybe not. But that frisky little animal that was just a few moments earlier playing out in the field now had its throat slit and its blood poured out. That's death. That's really, really ugly, but so is death. And then, of course, the, the last category I have are, are what I call secondary doctrines. These are doctrines that are, may or may not be clearly taught in Scripture. But they, and they really don't affect a person's salvation or their Christian growth. And, and the, the thing is, uh, different people can have, hold different opinions about these particular doctrines. And, 
and both love the Lord. One of the best examples of that that I can think of is, is the events that occur around the return of the Lord Jesus. Whether the rapture happens first and then the, the great tribulation and then the, the return of Christ and then the millennial kingdom or whether the, the, the rapture occurs along with the return of Christ and everything is wrapped up as an amillennialist would, would teach. People who really love the Lord who are, have grown in their, in their Christian life hold both positions. It really doesn't affect your Christian life that much. But what I want to talk about is a doctrine. <laughs> Again, use your imagination. Picture, if you will, a butte. You know what a butte is? It's a, it's a geological feature that's a, it's basically a column of granite out in the middle of nowhere with a flat top. Sheer sides go, go straight down, basically. And again, in, the, in my mental picture of this thing, all the doctrines of Christianity are on, are on the top of, of this butte. And on the uh, very outside of those doctrines are all the essential doctrines. And if you, you can walk all over the place on top of that butte and not fall off. But if you step outside the essential doctrines, you fall off a thousand feet below. This particular doctrine that I want to talk about is a gate that leads to the steps off of the top of the butte to walk away, to walk away from the truth. And this is the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. The absolute necessity of believing the Word of God and acting on it. And in order to illustrate this, I want to turn to Luke chapter 16. And in this passage, the Lord makes a statement, then supports his statement with two illustrations. And we'll, we're going to go through this rather quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time with this. But it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make. In verses 1 through 15... You have the setting. What's the setting of this whole teaching? The setting is that the Lord Jesus is training his disciples on what God expects. And it starts off, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a, who had a manager in, in charge uh, were brought to him, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. It's the story of the unjust steward. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the story. Pastor had already done a tremendous exposition on it 
several months ago, so I don't want to deal with that too much. But again, in context, the Lord Jesus is training his disciples. He's, his topic is faithfulness and stewardship. And if you skip down to verse 10, you see the point that Jesus is trying to make. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If you can't trust somebody as, when your back is turned to them, are you going to give them more and more and more responsibility and more and more and more authority and more and more and more materials to be in control of? I don't think so. And as stewards of the Lord's word and of his work and of his service, the Lord gives us small responsibilities, so to speak, lesser responsibilities. Not that he knows or doesn't know what we will do. But as far as training is concerned, The Lord Jesus goes on to say, If then you have not been faithful in, in the unrighteous wealth, particularly the things that deal with earthly issues, if you haven't been faithful in discharging your duties that God has handed to you on earth, do you think you'll be responsible when charged with more true riches, as he puts it? eternal truths. And if you have not been faithful in what is that which is another's, who will give you that which is, your, not, which is your own? He that is faithful and trustworthy to discharge responsibilities is in relatively minor issues is someone that can be trusted with more important internal issues. Going further, nurse, no servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. And when you, when you think about these things, There can only ever be one master of your life. Either God or self. Now self comes in a lot of flavors. You can either get money for yourself or material possessions to yourself or, or fame or, or authority or position or power or status or and we can all name a whole gamut. But it all comes down to what I want for me, myself, and I.
And that's why he ends his teaching with the statement, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, re again, remember, this is, this, this, remember the big picture here. This is the Lord Jesus training his disciples on faithful stewardship for their life of walking with the Lord. And I think it interesting, in verse 16, I should say, uh, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now, here's, here's the Lord Jesus teaching his disciples, you might say minding his own business, and then here's the Pharisees. What did he say? Were they included in the teaching? The Lord Jesus wasn't directing his, com his comments to the Pharisees at that time, but they were listening in. Now, it's possible they were discharging their responsibility to make sh to, of protecting the people to make sure that this guy, meaning Jesus, was not some nut that's going to lead people astray. In reality, it was the other way around. The Pharisees were the ones leading them astray, and he was a, the Lord Jesus was the one who was trying to straighten them out. But more likely, they are trying to find something of which to accuse him, which they did on many occasions. But when they heard his teaching on faithfulness and focus on the Lord rather than on focus on money, they mocked and ridiculed him. After all, isn't that the sign of God's blessing? That, that you have a lot of money? That you have health? That you have strength? Isn't that what life is all about? To gather all this stuff to, your, to yourself? So they mocked him. They mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. Because... They love money. And the more they could get, that was better. Just as a sort of a side note, if you're going to teach the truth to people who reject the truth, Proverbs 29.9 is something you should uh, remember. If you contend with a foolish person, you're going to get one of two responses from them. Either anger or mockery. If you're witnessing to somebody who's a professed atheist, I have many people at work like that. My own brother is like that. And you get one of two responses. He'll either get angry with me whenever I try to witness to him, or he'll mock. He'll laugh. He'll scorn. He'll belittle. Yeah, you believe in creation. You believe in talking snakes. Yeah, and you believe that nothing exploded and became everything. 
But the Lord Jesus had a very pointed message to the Pharisees. And really for the people around. He said to them, verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Their whole concern is what other people thought of them. They wanted to show how great and wonderful they really were. It's a marvelous thing to contemplate the love of God. And you might think, how did that transition into this? Well, I'll get to that. It is a marvelous thing to, to contemplate the love of God. To meditate on how the Lord Jesus expressed that love, as, as Ron mentioned this morning. The emphasis, and well, I'll go on. Ron sort of introduced that subject, and uh, it's in the message. But often we make two mistakes when we talk about and we think about the love of God. The first one, the first mistake is we emphasize the wrong aspect of love. We emphasize the depth of the emotion that, of God rather than the activities involved in his expression of love. And that's, what, that's the point that Ron was trying to make this morning. The scripture, particularly the, the Greek word agapao, doesn't focus on the emotions. No, the emotions are there. God's emotional. God does have emotional attachment to his, his creation and, and particularly to his own. But that's not the focus of that word. The focus of that word is how you show it. How, what do you do to express the love that you have? So often, well, let me finish this. The second error is that we so overemphasize the love of God that we neglect His justice, His holiness, His truth. And so often we end up, particularly in the broader culture, we end up with a God that's nothing more than a spineless mass of quivering emotion that can't do anything. He certainly wouldn't belittle or take exception to the statement of, of some unbeliever, right? Wrong. What Jesus is exercising is the love of God to those Pharisees. These Pharisees were so ungodly in their attitudes and belief and so self-deluded in their own self-righteousness that the Lord's judgment was someday going to fall upon them unless they repent of their sin. 
But because of his love, the Lord Jesus had to confront them for the sin. You are those who justify yourself, who wrap yourself up in, in all the externals. And as he says elsewhere, and ignore the weightier issues of the law. They love money. They love power and fame and prestige. And they love the God whom they constructed out of their own imagination rather than the God of truth. What they love, God hates. Because in reality, all these things that we can bring to ourselves are nothing more than idols. As James says, covetousness, which is idolatry. They were idols made by men to replace the true and the living God. So that's really the, the circumstances surrounding this whole topic. The Lord Jesus is going to make a statement. And this really is the whole context for the rest of the chapter. It sets the context. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away and for one dot of the law to become void. Now, when the passage, when the Lord talks about that all the, the people uh, force their way into the kingdom that is being preached, that is kind of a vague phrase, and commentators debate back and forth what exactly it means. And I'll give you my, my understanding of it anyway, and again, you can pay your nickel and take your choice. But when I see the Lord Jesus using this phrase, people force their way to get into the kingdom, I think of the throngs of people who followed the Lord Jesus, particularly in the beginning of his ministry. Jesus was the happening religious thing. And everybody wanted to be part of it. They wanted to be in the kingdom. But precious Precious few wanted to do it God's way. They had their own ideas and tried to use those, those ideas to force their way into the kingdom. The Pharisees wanted to, to keep their, what they called the law, and that would mean that they're righteous, and they're righteous enough to get into the kingdom. People, other people had various other thoughts. And, and this, this concept reminds me of uh, 
John 6.15. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, what does it say happened next? Jesus perceived that they were going to take him by force and make him king. What? When has any king ever been crowned by his subjects? In that case, where's the reigning authority? That's communism. A king is crowned by a higher authority. Government reigns by a higher authority. Who's the higher authority? God. Christ will be king by God's authority. Not by man's authority. All these people wanted all the benefits that they could get with none of the responsibilities. Verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, that word dot, or if you have the King James, they use the word tittle. What's a tittle? Well, does anybody have... Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 117. And in some publications of the Bible, what they'll do, Psalm 117 is an acrostic psalm. It's divided up into 22 eight-verse groups. And each of those groups naturally has eight verses, and each one of those verses start with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first one is, the first group is Aleph, the next one is Beth, the next one is Gimel, the next one is Daleth, and the He, Wal, Zion, He, and all the rest of them. If you look, if, if your Bible has the actual Hebrew letter printed, if you look at the fourth group, Daleth, Dalas, And look at the, the, oh, I forget, I forget what number of letter it is, but it's around uh, 15 or 16. It's the letter R or Resh. If they have printed the actual Hebrew, yes, 119. Was, did it, was I saying 117? Ah. Yeah, big time. <laughs> I wondered why all these quizzical faces were out here. <laughs> anyway, Psalm 119. If you look at the fourth group, Daleth, which is D, the letter D, and, and I think it's around the 15th letter, I forget what, but it's the letter Resh, 
which is the letter R, they're very, very similar. It's, it's a slash across the top and then a slash down. But the R is rounded where the D is straight across and then straight down. The difference between those two letters is a tittle. The little section that kind of hangs out at the, at the top right-hand corner, that's a tittle. It's the tiniest little thing that you can think of. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for that little tittle, the difference between a D and an R, to pass away. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that the Lord Jesus is trying to say something like, well, I know that the Lord in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11 wrote with his very singer, finger that in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. But he really meant for, it took him 14.7 billion years. Do you really think that's what he's trying to get at by saying that nothing of what the Lord has said or spoken is ever going to pass away as long as this earth stands. I don't, I don't get that idea. Anybody that comes to the Lord must do it God's way. By grace, through faith, plus nothing. And this is the key point that the Lord is, going, is making and will be illustrating throughout the rest of the chapter. I'm going to have to make this rather quick. From there, there are two illustrations. He had the setting. He had the statement. Now he has two illustrations. First... Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is a, a direct charge at the teaching of the Pharisees about how a man can divorce his wife. All you have to do, this is what the Pharisees taught, all you have to do is write down on a piece of paper, you are not my wife, I am not your husband, and give it to her in the sight of all the elders of the, of the city, and, and you're divorced. And then you can go ahead and marry some hot chick that you've been eyeing up for a while. And not be guilty. I mean, you... What's the Lord Jesus say? If you do that... That's adultery. In Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, when questioned about divorce and remarriage, 
Where does the Lord go to develop his teaching of marriage? Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, he quotes, God made them male and female. And in 2.24, he says, what God has joined together, let no man put us under. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Where does he go to prove the doctrine of marriage? The Old Testament. The law and the prophets. Secondly, the second illustration is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And again, hopefully you, you, you know the story. I'm not going to go over it right now. But according to many commentators, this is a parable. A fictional story meant to illustrate a point. Many, many people hate the thought that the rich man was in conscious torment in hell because his rejection of the Lord Jesus, the rejection of God and his word, which is, of course, illustrated by his callous indifference toward the suffering of Lazarus. But let me ask you this, too. If this is not a true story, if none of the events occurred as Jesus related them, Abraham saying what he did, and the rich man saying what he did, and asking for his brothers, to Lazarus, to go back to, to tell his brothers and warn them, if those things did not literally happen, how does that support Jesus' point that the law and the prophets are forever? This is a true story. Even the most awesome, the most tremendous, the most fantastic miracle that can happen, like a resurrection, will not bring a guilty sinner to God. It takes the Spirit of God using the Word of God in and through the man or woman of God to bring sinners to Himself. That's the means that He has chosen. the word of God that God has ordained to be the vehicle through which the message of salvation is communicated. Without the word of God, and I was actually planning to preach next week until I found out last night Jonathan's going to be here. But it's important that we maintain 
the understanding. This is God's Word. This is, as Job puts it, more important than my necessary food. The lessons for our life. Many people in our day and age, just like during the Lord's ministry, have their own concept of how they can get to heaven. Many don't even acknowledge there is a heaven or a hell. Uh, have, you ever heard, have you ever been witnessing to somebody and they say, well, I want to go to hell so I can be with my buddies? That's a person who really doesn't believe in hell. And they really, they're in effect saying, get away from me, I don't want to talk about the subject anymore. But hell is very real. And it's very, very awful. But if a person does acknowledge heaven and hell, they think that either all are going to go to heaven, or surely I'm not so bad that I won't go to heaven. Maybe somebody else. I mean, and we can all point out somebody who's worse off than we are. But the Word of God makes it abundantly plain. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And no man cometh unto the Father but by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one way. And that is exclusive. I know that's a lot, another concept that the world doesn't like. But because we are all sinners, we all have our idols in our hearts. Just like the Pharisees, we find our comfort zone with God. We want to keep Him close enough that He can provide for us everything that we might want, but we don't want Him so close that He might require something of us that might get a little bit uncomfortable. Remember, Everything that is highly regarded among men is an abomination to God. What's the first and greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. But the whole point is, the most important thing, the most important desire, the most important goal, the most important thing that we can ever have is the love for the Lord. And how do we show that love? How do you show love to somebody who has everything? You ever try to buy, some, buy a Christmas present for somebody who quote, has everything, unquote. Well, God literally has everything. How do we show our love for Him? One of the simplest child songs ever. 
O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to know that we believe. Finally, how do you view the Word of God? Is it more important to you than your daily food? Jonah 23.12. Or I should say Job 23.12. He says, I have esteemed the, the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Some accuse the believer of bibliolatry. We worship the Bible. No, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the Lord because He's communicated through the Bible. Remember, it is the Lord Himself who raises His word above His name. Psalm 138.2 More importantly, this attitude towards the word of God is acknowledgement of how God intends us to learn of Him. Do we learn of Him day by day? Do we partake of the Word day by day by day? There's no better life. No more important thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take this, Your Word, apply it to our hearts so that we can truly be Your disciples, Your followers. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you.